Fox Spots and Chair Shots. And people, just to start off, if y'all haven't, go subscribe to Fox Spots and Chair Shots on all platforms to make sure we get in here on Fox Spots and Chair Shots. One of the hottest podcasts out here. Definitely from the spotlight. DJ Savage represents the takeover all day. And Fox Spots and Chair Shots, check Hello to all my people. If you're watching live, checking us out on YouTube, or listening on your favorite podcast provider, you are most definitely my people. Welcome to another episode of Botch Bots and Chair Shots. I'm your host, a chef by trade and a mark by choice, and I am so hyped about tonight's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me tonight, he is a coach and trainer at the Fallout Shelter. He is based out of the NY. He carries his barbell everywhere he goes. He is the colossal one, Mike Law. Mike, how are you? Thanks for coming on and chatting about some wrestling. I love the name of the podcast, by the way. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Excellent, man. Uh, let's go ahead and start at the top. How are things at the Fallout shelter, shelter going for you guys? Good, good. You know, this is like kind of my favorite time of year to train. I love training every uh, season, but I love the heat. You know what I mean? There's something about training in this type of uh, environment that uh, really separates the uh, those that want to do this from those that, you know, um, probably you know, have the desire, but probably the fortitude is not there. So it's going to be a lot of separating in the next few months. Uh, but we have a strong, a lot of strong people, a lot of, uh, characters, a lot of, um, uh, people with uh, high, you know, big personalities. So I'm enjoying this, this ride. I'm enjoying the journey. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, along with the fellow coaches, uh, Masha Slamovich, um, from impact wrestling, Steve Pena, Santi, um, Coach Santi, I think, uh, myself, uh, as well as Joe Cam and Paul. Everyone has, you know, lends a hand in, in creating what we hope is the next uh, generation of talent in professional wrestling. Uh, where did wrestling start for you as one half of the question being as a fan and the other half as a professional? What wrestling were you exposed to as a child? And then what really made you go, okay, this is what I want to do for a living? Man, uh, so the first match that I can recall was back when I watched Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage at Madison Square Garden. I remember telling a story a while back about how that night, I don't remember anything other than the fact that that was a cage match. And still to this day, I still mark out to him, man. I still, that's the one match that I've always wanted to be in that I've never been in, in the 20 plus years I've been wrestling. And um, it was Steve, Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage in the main event. Um as a fan, I was like, man, this is so cool, man. Like, I just, I was like five years old, five or six. I remember my uncle, <laughs> he had, you know, those, those blower horns, those, those deals. So he yeah. was just sounding off about that. He had a couple of drinks in him, and the guys in front of us didn't like it too much. There was going to be a, a post-main event match afterwards. It was going to be a dark match. Uh, look, I think, I think security broke it up. Um, but, yeah, that was, as far as being a fan, that was my initial, like, connection you know i would watch a lot of you know wwf i mean it's really the only thing because it was a northeast thing really and you know later on nwa and stuff like that and you know ecw as a fan you know and, uh a lot of awa but that was like later on you know i wasn't really exposed to that as much because you know titan had the the uh stronghold in the northeast especially new york um as far as you know i i i was I wanted to be in the wrestling team because I, I don't know, even back then I knew that if I had learned amateur wrestling, it probably would have been helpful in pro wrestling. So I never made any of the teams, but I will say that um, my uncle, he was a referee for like an underground promotion in Brooklyn, 
called Arena Puerto Rico. Although at the time, I don't know if that was what it was called. And uh, he got into it legitimately. Some One of the, the other guys, I guess, didn't like my uncle too much and broke a, a legitimately broke a Heineken bottle of his head. <laughs> and that was it for him. He was done. After that, he didn't want to referee no more. And uh, he introduced me to this guy named Pedro Rodriguez, who's like five foot nothing. But he was jacked, man. I mean, this dude was like, I mean, he was made out of granite. I mean, he just jacked. And uh, Hurricane, uh, I forget the freaking wrestling name. But anyway, uh, he introduced me to him. I was 15 years old. I started training in August of 1998. Um, and then. You know, I mean, it wasn't much training as much as me getting my ass kicked every day. I mean, every time I went in, it was me getting beat up. And I guess it was a way for them to test you at the time. I don't know if you could get away with that these days. <laughs> but that's the way they kind of just broke you in the business was, you know, before you learned anything, you would just like, they, they tested you a lot to see if you had the, the fortitude to continue. So starting your career in the late 90s versus where we're at in 2022, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the business, especially on the indie scene? Um, yeah, I, I think social media is a huge influence, obviously. I think I don't – there are positive and negative to it because I was – you know, I remember the day, the time when I would take a VHS tape. And for you guys who don't know who that is, just look it up. It's a, v, a, a VHS tape and a hard copy of my resume of whatever, you know, maybe that done. Uh, I didn't have my first pro match until like 2001, meaning I didn't get paid or, you know, have a, a, a like a legitimate professional match until like 2001 for NWA over the top in New Jersey. Um, I don't know. I kind of just missed picking up the phone and calling a promoter or getting a call from a promoter. You know, I always thought that was like a cool deal. Um, you know, a lot of that communication has changed. I think, um, there was like pro wrestling at that, especially during the late nineties, early two thousands, heavily influenced by ECW and hardcore wrestling. And, um, I don't, I know now, you know, looking back and look at CT and stuff like that, it's like, you know, shit, sometimes it probably, some of us should have taken some time off. I know I've gotten my fair share of concussions, um, during those times, but, uh, you know, I think the advent of like stuff like that, like CT and just knowing that. You know, we got to protect ourselves better. Um, I I think it was a grittiness to it. You know what I mean? Like if you watch any of that stuff from the '90s, no way you could get away with a lot of that stuff. There's no way. I mean, I just don't even think. I think from the training standpoint, legally, some of the beatings that were handed out definitely couldn't get away with it. Um, I mean, I saw some shit, man. Like, you know, some sometimes it was justified. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, you know, sometimes I would think like, you know, it was a way of kind of differentiating the pretenders from the guys who were going to do this thing. Uh, and don't get me talk, don't get me wrong, I'll talk where I, I second, third, you know, I, I rethought my, my process a lot of time. Um, I think there was a grittiness to it. Uh, back then, uh, it's a little bit, I would say I was a lot cleaner now. Um, definitely a lot more inviting. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think you can't even, fault that older generation because it was I think I got it easy to be honest like the first time I got in the ring I was 15 years old and I got hung upside down in the corner and I, they just started chopping me like like it was a conga line of like workers and they were just chopping the shit out of me upside while I was hanging upside down with my shirt over my head and uh I don't know I remember thinking to myself like 
I, they probably want me to quit and I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? Like I just, uh, it was just, I don't know if it's the Puerto Rican in me or whatever, or, you know, it's just a, the pride in me that was like, I, I can't let that, I can't let anybody win, you know? And uh, I think there's a, there's a toughness now in terms of like athleticism, but I think there was a ruggedness that we've somehow lost from the time that I started in 1998. till now I think, I think, you know, this is a tough business and it is a physical business. And I'm just saying you can still, you know, be tough without having to kill somebody. There is that way of doing this, this thing of ours. So um, I think there needs to be a better process of kind of making people get to that next level of being a, what we consider a professional wrestler. So when you're- That was this- a long-winded response. Sorry. No, that was perfect. Um <laughs> I'm really interested in hearing some of those stories going back and forth with some of the guys that were brought up in when I say the old days or the golden days back before uh, the Turner buyout, even in the territories when they were traveling and they were on the road. Then you get to guys who are in that, I'll call it the attitude era of wrestling, that mid to late 90s. You know what I mean? And then even the stories that I hear from the guys that have started in the late 2000s. So it's funny to me how similar the stories are from each generation of wrestler that I've had a chance to talk to. So it's fascinating to hear some of the similarities and some of the struggles based on your story and some of the other stories I've had a chance to hear from guys coming up in that same period. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, I think I've had a little bit easier than I, I don't know. I mean, people will probably look at like a little less like barbaric, you know, and I'm, I'm sure if I had to show my parents, all the welts and the bloody tests from that, they probably would have told me never to go back there. Uh, but, you know, to me, I, I also looked at it this way. I go, there were guys in that ring that could have legitimately put me out and hurt me for good. And if they wanted to, they could have. And I would have either known how to defend myself at the time or uh, I could have, and they would have done it anyway because they were legitimate and some sort of, you know, ability to, to hurt somebody. Um, but like I said, I, even I feel like, okay, like, I, even after like six or seven months of getting just the crap beat out of me, I, I, I earned the respect, but I at the same time, like, um, well, I don't think you should beat the hell out of people these days. I don't think, you know, I, that's not the way I train people. Um, and, uh, you know, even Paul Shelton, none of the other coaches go that route. Um, I think, you know, there is a little bit of tough love that's involved with what we do. So this, this is going to seem like a really weird question. I hope I word it right for you. I've heard a lot of tra- <laughs> no. I've heard a lot of trainers describe the collar and elbow as the once upon a time with the story that's told in the rink. Okay, so it's the start right. of every story. Uh, what would be the thing that you would teach somebody when you're working on their finish? What would you say would be that one part that's like really important to you when you're finishing the match, telling the end of the story? If the collar and elbow, pe- if the collar and elbow start it, what's something you look for in your trainees when you want to end it? Oh, you know, that's a great question. Well, um, I always tell a lot of my trainees, always find a counter to your very own finish. Meaning if your finish is an RKO, always look to have a counter to it. The reason I say that is because you want there to be a build. If this is indeed your finisher and you're protecting it, there should be some sort of build to it where, you know, you try it once, person either counters it, gets out of it somehow. And then ultimately when you finally do hit it, it means something, you know what I mean? Like there's a build to it. So you don't necessarily have to hit it all. You don't have to necessarily do all that teasing at the end of the match, but I figure if you tease it in the beginning and then maybe somewhere in the middle and then finally get your shot and you kill, you know, it's a kill shot, boom, 
you hit them out of nowhere, whatever, you know, your big finish. Um, I always say, like, always try to look for counters towards your own finish that you can pitch to other, your opponent, oddly enough. <laughs> so that way, they, you know, they can kind of gauge or, or you know, look at it as in that perspective. And then when that finally hit that, that big, big move or that maneuver, um, the fans get it. Even if they've never seen you before, they're like, oh, okay, that's what he meant to go for. And that's what he finally got. And that's what got the win. And it makes kind of correlates all together. So if you have a student and they're coming up in your class and you have them and they're just oozing charisma, do you push them harder in promo classes or and or vice versa for somebody who's super strong in the ring but maybe not uh, a super strong talker yet on the stick? Uh, do you adjust the training from student to student based on their their strengths, I guess is a good way to look at it. Uh, yes and no. I, I think everyone has – I think we're at a time in – well, we're at a time and age, man, where you have to be the total package. And I'm not talking about Lex Luger. Uh, even though, you know, he, he portrayed himself very well as the total package. But I will say you need to be able to do it all. You need to be able to speak on the mic. You need to be able to entertain people. You need to be, you know, you have to have some sort of physical feature to yourself that, you know, makes you different from everyone else. Um, you know, you, you have to obviously be able to perform in the ring, you know, to a high level, especially, you know, when you look at the talent in the like AEW, you know, WWE, NXT, et cetera, New Japan, you know, like there are levels to this. Um, I, I like people to get uncomfortable, you know, you know what I mean? I like, I, if you're, if you're a fantastic in-ring performer, I'm going to test you to go and cut a 30, 45 second promo and, and get me invested in you. If that's not your thing, I, I want you to, I want it to be your thing. Uh, if you're a great promo person and you have a huge personality, but your in-ring's lacking, then we're going to test you as well on that. You know, I think. Part of expanding as far as – and the one thing that I regret when I was younger because I was very naive and I was very stubborn was not expanding. You know, I was I was in my own little world with, you know, my buddies and we were traveling, you know, to these small towns. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I will say that I made a mistake going up in the business that uh, I – not that I regret because it's all led me to this. So it's not like a huge – like, oh, I regret not having that. Um, but I will say that a lot of it – for me, as far as like what I try to pass on to the trainees and students is like, get out of the comfort zone. You know what I mean? Get like, don't just, you know I mean? Once they're ready to get to that next level in terms of like getting on to independence and, you know, hopefully larger organizations, don't just settle for wrestling out in New York or New Jersey, get out, go to Ohio, go to Florida, go to, you know, go to California, you know, go get your, face and name out there get that brand out there and, and get, get out of your comfort level wrestle with people that are better than you you know i was always man you gotta be honest like i was like I, when i was 15 years old I was 110 pounds like soaking wet dude i looked pale as a ghost i had no actual muscular feature on my body whatsoever <laughs> uh you know i didn't you know i just when i started going to the indies i was so insecure and timid that uh I was worried. I'd get in there and see guys training, working out, and go, oh, I don't want to get schooled. You know what I mean? I don't want to get punked out in the ring. But that's how you get better. Anyone, you know, that's, that's how you get better. You get in there with people better than you. But as far as, like, training towards people's um, strong suits, I, I try to go out of it. So that way they can be uncomfortable. So that way they can, you know, find the, the courage to overcome, like, whatever part of their game is, is flawed. 
Excellent. So we talked about Mike Law, the trainer. Now let's talk about Mike Law, the wrestler. You've got a big match coming up in June, ECWA, uh, Sam Shields. You're having a shot at the gold again. Uh, What's it like looking down the barrel, having another chance to become a champion again? Uh, You know, it's funny. I was talking to my friend about this a few days ago. Like Sam, I've known Sam Shields for like an eternity. You know what I mean? And and, and in, in all honesty, in 2001, wow, my very first pro match was against Sam Shields at NWA over the top for Fred Rubenstein, Dan O'Connell, and uh, Doc Diamonds. I, I was funny because we were talking about it. I go, I don't know if Doc, Doc Diamonds is still alive. Doc, if you're still alive, you know, uh, hope falls well with you. Um, but he was the very first professional match I had. And I'll say this, like, I did get better. I was like, my stripes were shitty. You know, my, my like, my... There was a lot of things that I didn't pick up. And then I started training and wrestling with guys like Sam Shields uh, and, and Spiral BKNY, got wrestled soul, and a few other guys, and it made me better. So I find it kind of funny because we go back now, down now to, to, the, to you know, June 25th for the ECW Heavyweight title. And I think, in my opinion, like it's the other way around. I think he knows that I've, it's all come full circle, you know what I mean? And I feel like even though he dedicated a, a small portion of his time in the business, really hard to the business, to the wrestling business, and he did the tryout to Ring of Honor, he did the tryout to NXT or, you know, I guess NXT, FCW at the time, uh, you know, Impact. He did all those things. But I think overall, I think he has to realize that at this point, I've made a bigger impact in wrestling than he has, you know what I mean? And it's not me just, you know, just talking. I think, I think anyone could, you could clearly see, like, if you could put our careers on a, on side to side analysis, you would know that I've accomplished more than he has. Um, you know, I was the, I was the first ECWA heavyweight champion to defend that title outside of the United States. Uh, there were going to be more title defenses. Uh, you know, fortunately I lost the title. Uh, and then I never, I, I didn't come back to the business. It was a business decision. Uh, but as far as that, man, like, I'm ready, man. I'm ready to have that, that title around my waist. I'm ready to – and it's not a knock on anyone else, man. And I know the close, close friends of mine will probably hear this and think I'm a dickhead, but I'm saying that me personally, I, it's time for me to take that title and make people care about me again. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? And, I, and, and if anyone who takes offense with that may have had that title had, uh, before in terms of the last few months or years, there's no denying it. You know what I mean? When I win a title, when it, it makes, it makes it proud, you know what I mean? It's a big deal. And it's, it's because I've invested myself in my brand. I've, I've worked my ass off. You know what I mean? I train, you know, I work out, you know, it's like, it's not just me saying I'm a wrestler. I, I am a wrestler. I live this life. And I feel since I started coming back in 2015, that, that I've been doing that, you know what I mean? That I've led by example. So, you know, for me, the ECWA title, uh, it's the longest running, you know, independent company in the in the world, uh, other than you know, uh, CMLL as far as independence in the well, say the United States, let's say the United States. And I feel that you know I'm going to represent that company better than anybody else will. Um, and you know, Sam Shields, I think knows that. I think the promoters know that. I think uh, I know the fans know that. So you know, we'll see what happens on the on June 25th. 
You also have another, you also have another big debut coming up in July with Guts and Glory. Uh, so when you're going from ECWA to BCW to Guts and Glory and you're bouncing all over, how do you prepare mentally? And uh, going back to your trainer uh, hat, how do you prepare your trainees mentally when it comes to bouncing from story to story and territory to territory and keeping up with not only who they are, but also keeping up their stories and individual feuds from promotion to promotion? That's a good, that's a great question. Well, I, you know, I think a lot of times it just showcases the, my, I mean, again, I'm putting myself over here, my versatility, because I feel that um, not everyone could just jump, hey, I'm this guy at ECWA, right? And then I'm at this guy at uh, Guts and Glory or On Point. Like, if you look at my matches at On Point Wrestling, for example, yeah, yes, I did my first ever death match against Kid Osborne there. But that style, what I incorporate at On Point is more of a hardcore style. I think if you saw, saw my match with Brandon Kirk, you can definitely see that that style is, is, is catered more to that audience. For me, it's just the professionalism of knowing, hey, this is what I need to do. This is the audience that I'm wrestling in front of. And this is what the story I have to convey to them. You know what I mean? Like, uh, wrestling's a very... I, it's a very, I'm taking a, a phrase from coach uh, Jorge Santi. It's a very abstract industry. You know what I mean? Like what you're considered to do today may change a week from now, two days from now. So I think for me, I, I just being, I want people to know that after it's all said and done, that I was one of the most versatile professional wrestlers, you know, whether you needed me to, I'm not a card filler. I'll, I'll be honest. Like I, I think I'm beyond that point. And I think a lot of people, know that so i'm not the guy that you're going to call hey can you fill in this spot for me what do you need done what what needs to what is the purpose of what we need to do to get the audience uh you know to come back you know what i mean and um i worked very hard at that a very i took you know a lot of work in my reputation and uh you know i've always tried to do business well you know what i mean like uh does it always happen no uh but i've always maintained that i've always tried to do business with everyone the way i would want people to do business with me and uh, I just tell a lot of the students, hey, guys, you have to be adaptable. You have to be able to adapt to any situation you're given. Things will change at the drop, stop, uh, drop of a dime. Uh, cards subject to change. You just never know. And you've got to be able to work around that. And that's the way I feel about myself. If I pass that along to the, uh, to the trainees at the fallout shelter. Excellent, Mike. I close all of my interviews with five rapid-fire questions. I've got yours queued up and ready to go. You ready? Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, I'll give me a two-step. Two <laughs> all right. Uh, what's your favorite venue you've ever wrestled in? Wow. Um, there's a lot of them. I will say uh, uh, Capital Wrestling had a church in New Jersey, in Jersey City, that was – I mean, no pun intended, godly. It was amazing. And I'm, I'm bummed out that we never got to go back there. We did two shows there, and then I don't know what happened. But that venue, for my money, was one of the coolest-looking videos. So badass. What is your favorite move to teach a student? Anything. Like, if there's one technique, one move, one stretch, anything you like, the one thing you're just like, man, this is my favorite thing to teach. Um... Arm drags. I love. I love teaching arm drags. I love giving them. I love taking them. I like. 
I think they're so cool, man. If you can really time those well and smoke it and get the person and get that that flip over, man, it's just a, it's such a cool, easy move. I would say back body drop is second because I love taking those things. Again, very simple. No one really does them as much anymore. Um, I go pretty high with those. Okay. What is your favorite finisher that isn't yours to use? Um, that isn't mine to use. I, I, I hated taking it because it sucked. Um, it's a toss-up between the Burning Hammer or the uh, Cop Killer, the Gringo Killer, or the Toyota Driver. They both, like... They're both painful as hell. They suck to take, but they're very cool visually. All right. And two non-wrestling related. Do you have a favorite song? I'm a big Billy Joel fan. Uh, dang. Um, yeah, I don't want to give any. Like, you know, I, that's, that's like my personal side of uh, like, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, God, this is a good one. Only because there's so many of them. Uh, I don't want, and then I'm going to come back on this and everyone go, oh, I didn't like that one. Should have, it should have done a different uh, song. Oh, shoot. I don't know, man. Affirmation. Affirmation by George Benson. The smooth jazz song. Uh, keeps me mellow. And favorite fast food? Gosh. Used to be pizza. Uh, is. Yeah, I guess pizza. Pizza can't you can't go wrong, you know what I mean? I mean, I guess you could if you go to certain places, but New York, you know, I mean, pretty much it's all sells itself, really. Excellent. Well, Mike, I appreciate you stopping by and chatting about some wrestling, man. This is the part uh, where I give you the mic for a second, and I just tell everybody, uh, plug your socials, tell everybody where to find you and stuff like that. All right, well, thank you very much, man. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, very simple. Colossal Mike Law. You can purchase my uh, my shirts on storefrontier.com. Just search Colossal Mike Law as well as Pro Wrestling Tees. I do have the official. These will not be available online. These will officially be available through me directly. Uh, this is the Death Match Mike, uh, garbage pale kid version of myself. Uh, and those are available directly through me. You can DM me or email me at the Colossal Mike Law at gmail.com. For more information, um, check out my upcoming events, uh, my YouTube page. I still need a lot more subscribers. And uh, again, Colossal Mike Law all across the board. Also, I can't forget my barbell, Barbie B. She has her own Instagram and her own Twitter, and that's at Real Barbell uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. I think. Awesome. Now, as we close another episode of Botch Bots and Chair Shots, I want to take a minute and thank everybody for stopping by and listening. Remind them to go anywhere they do anything on the internet. Like, follow, subscribe, unsubscribe, then subscribe again. Leave a comment telling us how great we are, how terrible we sound. Either way, it helps our algorithm and it helps find new listeners. As always, I am your host, The Will Gray. Thanks for stopping by and listening, my people. Botch Spots and Chair Shots. And people, just to start off, if y'all haven't, go subscribe to Botch Spots and Chair Shots on all platforms to make sure we're here on Botch Spots and Chair Shots, one of the hottest podcasts out here. Definitely from the spotlight. DJ Savage of Texas Echo, Echo Ball Game, and Botch Spots and Chair Shots. Check. Savage!